Battle Line podcast. Now, for any of you seeing the title, if you are a fan of Dope, Static X, or any project Edsel Dope has been a part of, you are going to love this podcast because we go really deep. Uh, had a great time talking to Edsel. Before we get into anything, you know what I didn't ask Edsel? I didn't ask him if he was into CBD because when you think about it, the band Dope has a history with, uh, I think, anything on the cutting edge, I'll say. And to me, CBD is still evolving. Uh, just look at Ned's new Brain Blend. Uh, it's the first product I've certainly taken. It's a mix between a nootropic, nootropic and, um, and full-spectrum hemp. They did a great job with that one. That's something I take every single night, and it's going to help with your focus, your alertness. I mean, I'm recording this late at night, so it's super dark, and I'm still wide awake, thanks to Ned. Uh, all their products are great. And also their hemp-infused balm now, their, their hemp-infused relief balm is excellent. So make all of this stuff a part of your daily or nightly ritual, and your body is going to thank you. These products are science-backed, nature-based solutions that offer an alternative to prescription and over-the-counter drugs. Ned CBD is cold extracted from the world's purest USDA-certified organic hemp in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. Full transparency, Ned shares third-party lab reports, who farms their products, and their extraction process, all right there on their site. They have over 2,000 five-star reviews, and they've just been excellent ever since I've been using them, which is pretty much since we started this podcast nearly three years ago. And uh, they're great, so check them out. Become the best version of yourself. And as a new subscriber or a new customer of Ned's, you'll get 15% off with the code BATTLELINE. The link is right there in the description. Go to helloned.com slash BATTLELINE or enter the code BATTLELINE to check out and you're going to get 15% off. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash BATTLELINE. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. We love Ned. Love what Ned does. Uh, Chris Tonto Peranto is out this episode. But I promise if you if you stick around, you're going to enjoy this. And even if you're not familiar with Dope, for our loyal listeners who uh, might just be checking out because they listen to every show, we do get some military stuff as well. I promise you, you're going to enjoy, you're going to learn. So let's get right into it. Edsel Dope right here on Battleline Podcast. From Omaha, Nebraska to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Switch is on. Motherfucker, I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. The switch is on. 
one battle line podcast here with a very special guest edsel dope of dope uh founder of dope really the singer songwriter plays instruments on everything executive producer more recently with static x and i know a million other projects which you spoke about in your most recent um video but uh yeah it's it's an honor to have you on man i mean i've been in radio since 2006 and that's actually the same year i got into dope so i've been into this band the past 16 years of my life <laughs> wow I, I appreciate that that makes me feel really old because i had already had like a really awesome career up until that point so like you you met me so far along the way uh but that's that's really cool so that means you do you remember what album you discovered us through was it like the newer american apathy album or was it the old shit absolutely american apathy and i could tell you i could tell you what made me a fan and i wanted to get into this anyway um you guys in 2006 summer of 2006 i have a very good memory for like shows and that type of thing you guys did a tour sponsored by jaegermeister you played the crazy donkey on long island where i'm from and it was you mantis you were with makeshift romeo at the time so cool. also one of the bands on there and I was a huge fan of Mantis. To me, that's one of those bands that should have been way bigger, but they just put out one album um, and it kind of imploded from there like so many other bands. And what turned me on to Dope, because I was familiar with you guys at the time, but I wasn't necessarily a fan until seeing you live, like I think a lot of people are. And the thing that I think really worked for me with Dope and with so many other people is that so much music of that time, what people uh, classify as that whole new metal genre, is and I'm into it. It's angry, aggressive type of music, but I always felt like dope, and especially you brought a fun vibe to it as well. Because I remember Makeshift Romeo, you know, you and Virus were in the band, so you traded off on drums, and Virus was still up there. And then the the two remaining members, I remember mid show, like went to the back of the uh, the venue, had drinks with fans at the back of the bar while you guys played, and then went back up there. And to me, it was like. It's just such a fun vibe. It must have been what it was like to me seeing Motley Crue in the club days. And I always thought, think Dope had that aggressive vibe that you bring in your songs. But at the same time, anyone who's gone to a Dope show sees like we're here to have fun and have a blast. Yeah, you, I appreciate you saying that. It's funny because um, that was mostly brought upon us by failing, for lack of better words um like we were uh we were super hot when we first got signed to epic records and we were part of that whole new metal movement in 1999 into 2000 on on some of the biggest tours and then um long story short but we we inevitably we were primed to take the next step forward in 2001 when our second album came out but a, a lot of contributing factors, none withstanding the World Trade Center falling mm. while we were pushing a certain energy with a song called Die Motherfucker Die. And if you looked at the artwork of the Life album prior to it coming out, there's a whole bunch of censored bars all over it because in the artwork, there was the White House blowing up, like all this just, just anti-establishment uh, Pick de depiction was, was yeah. taking place. well you know we were on sony music dude like they were not about that life like that was and i was a young artist who didn't have my head on clearly with the business side of things to realize that like you know maybe i should you know consider 
that they have an issue here, then maybe I can work within my creative artistic expression, but to find another way to not be so deliberate about it where we won't have a problem. But that comes with wisdom. But at the time, I did what I did. And, uh, you know, we ultimately left Epic Records a month after that album came out. Um, essentially, like, you know, it, it wasn't official, but we all knew it was over uh, and became an independent band. And since then, I've been an independent band. But um, but what sorry to take you on such a long story. No, I, I'm I'm fascinated because, like, as I said, this band has been such a big part of my life. So I am I'm a nerd for the music and for these awesome. stories. So I'm loving it. Well, so so where I'm taking you to is that when we sort of nosedived because yes back then there was no internet you know really so you all your momentum was predicated on the machine that was behind you once you become successful enough to get into the machine and sure. dope had done very well we were in the machine we had all the support when we would play any city in the united states there would be a label rep and there would be a record a record store that promoted it in a radio station well when you get dropped from a major label and at that time in, in the business, there was sort of a, a, a an unsaid, unwritten rule, for lack of better words, where like, if you got dropped from a major label and you and you had value, it was almost like assumed like you must be damaged goods. Like, why would they walk away from that? So it wasn't like we got dropped from Epic and we had lines of labels going like, oh, you guys are kicking ass. We want you. It was more like, oh, I, I guess there was a reason they moved on. So we became fully independent uh, very quickly, partially by choice, but it was very much forced upon us. Um, and then, uh, you know, you're going to, you're, you're, you're trying to tour now for the first time without a major agent, without the label, without the record store being involved, without the radio station being involved. And you, you can quickly find yourself going from theater stages to bars, and when you have the 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 sort of big arena rock vibe that Dope had when we first came out, kind of bigger than life, heavy, aggressive, whatever you want to say, um, it really works well in a theater environment. It also works in a punk rock club environment, but in a bar, it's a little fucking weird. And once the band took that sort of downward step and I had to learn how to play to crowds and bars and be funny and bring the fun <laughs> into it and not yeah. take myself so seriously, I actually got way better at my job. And then when we had in that upswing that took place after American Apathy and um, American Apathy ended up outselling our second major label record, which is the life record that has Diamond yeah. Eye on it. Apathy which is, which is crazy because crazy. I feel like the two Crazy. songs people associate dope with are die motherfucker die and the spin me around cover. Sure. Of course. But so point being that die motherfucker die was on a major label, American apathy, which, you know, doesn't have either of those songs that you just mentioned on it still eclipsed that second major label album in sales, which was sort of the point where dope was for a lack of better words back. Like we'd kind of earned our way back to being in, in the machine again, but now the business had involved evolved to where it was an independent minded machine. It took 10 years for it to happen, but it also took 10 years before American apathy outsold life. So, um, but point being that then dope found its way back to those bigger stages but I brought that humor and that lighter vibe, even though when the band was playing songs, it was very aggressive and throws down. But in between songs, the mood that I began to create was much more human and personal. 
and uh, failing and, and having to play bars really like a, allowed me to to reach a, a higher level of, of potential with being able to entertain people. So which I think set you guys apart. And the thing for me is, all right, so I'm 36 years old. So when I was in high school, Corn and all those bands from that new metal scene were the biggest bands. And I go through phases with music that I like. So I kind of worked backwards from there. And I remember getting into like what people would consider the 80s hair metal scene, which some consider derogatory way of like putting that genre. I don't I think it's fun music. So I don't I, I don't think it needs game. to be. Yeah, I don't think it needs to be taken so seriously. Now, I remember in 2004, I'd been to so many concerts prior, but seeing Vince Neil actually um, play a venue on Long Island. And I remember the vibe was so much different than any other concert I've, I'd ever been to because Vince was like, and this is known, like kind of buzzed dropping the mic mic stand on people being like what do you guys want to hear you want to hear girls 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 all right we'll play that and it was such a fun vibe that i was like i get this music because if you go to a corn show who's amazing great band and we've had dave silvera on the show there's no moment of like you guys having a great time it's it is a very angry aggressive vibe or slipknot or any of those bands and i feel like dope kind of bridges those two together in that it's angry aggressive music at the same time there's just a very fun vibe to it that you bring so you know without a you know more to say about it i just I, i've always liked that about you guys and it's why you connected with me uh as a fan and i've been going to shows since probably like a dozen shows or something since 2006 to now yeah i think part of that too um suspiciously is is that the original branding for dope, like the originally energy that it was kind of built in was very much meant to attract girls too. And, and, <laughs> and I, I've seen quite a few hot goth girls but, at dope but, shows, not going to lie. Is, but yeah, but the point is that like when you, when you're, when you start out with sort of that in mind as part of your target already audience that you don't, you sort of sacrifice a little bit of the ability to be the most creditable band if you're going like, no, do we want to do stuff that makes you want to shake your ass and like have fun? Like it, it, you sort of, it's hard to also like Pantera was one of the only bands that really ever did both where like you'd fucking, you'd do shots of black tooth and they'd be laughing on stage, but then they would play walk and they were the most creditable, ridiculous metal band on the planet, but they were also the most fun. So um, for us, we weren't Pantera. Um, and I think that we we consciously made that decision that even from the early onset, just in the way we looked and, and the type of energy we were putting out, we wanted it to be a, a room that when we when we played shows, it wasn't eight, you know, 95 percent dudes. And, you know, I think that helps, too. You know, when you have a, a, a when you have an engagement, a concert, whatever you want to call it, where people are coming to party and it's all dudes what the fuck is the energy going to be? <laughs> but if you can throw, you know, 40% of the room as girls, totally different fucking energy. And it's definitely more fun. And it's certainly still going to be rowdy, but it's not the same. So that was what we kind of consciously sacrificed, um, which is why we do so well when you put us in a, like a radio festival or a support situation, because we're going to have all the people on the outskirts, which is more the, you know, the youth and the, and the girls and then the pit is going to be also exploding in a big ball of dust. So that's true. I, I agree with all that. And I promise we'll get to the new stuff as well. We're going to, I'll try to cover as much as we can in this hour, but um, 
Yeah, I, I was wondering, actually, when you talk about not being considered the most credible band and, and all that, which I've never cared about, and I don't think you've ever cared about. But do you ever feel like you get pigeonholed into like the dope sound, which is those songs that we mentioned? Because to me, when I hear a song like Dream off American Apathy, I'm like, this could be a Linkin Park song. Sure. But but I feel like because dope gets classified into a certain genre, it at least for me, those songs could have like Dream, Now or Never, Sing. Those could have been massive hits, I feel like. And I feel like if it was a different artist doing those same songs that you wrote, they would have been hits. Maybe. Um, I, I understand what you're saying. The, 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 um, the, the, the credibility part, it doesn't play into that for me. And I'll explain it how it affects me. It's a little different. Um, I, I don't like it when I release a song. Like, let's even take the one of the newer songs that I released, a song called Believe. Which I love. Uh, I love thank, this new but, song. But you would probably admit that that song would kind of fall into the same description of what you just said. It's like now or never. It's it's not a, a song that you're going to put on and go, I'm going to go lift weights or I'm going to go like drive my car 100 miles an hour. Like it, it's it's different. It's it's more emotion than it is aggressive energy based. Um, so whether it's that song or sing or a hundred others that I've put out in my career, what, what does annoy me is when, when I'll hear somebody say like, this isn't dope. Like, what does this shit? And it's like, that means that you haven't paid attention. That's all you're telling me is that you're not actually a fan. Like you think, you know what my band is because you have resonated with the part of the band that is that, that we exploited the most, which which is great because I, I clearly I identify a great deal with that as well. It's me, but I've always kind of made my records except for the first one that was just, you know, all just bananas, but I've kind of, I've kind of made it a point to where at least close to half of the record has that energy of the industrial metal, you know, whatever you want to say that what people think the dope sound is. And then the rest of the record, I get to like leave that box and do what I want to do and explore different parts of myself. And I've always reserved that right to be a band that goes outside of the box of what people think we are. But whether or not those songs could have been hits if marketed differently, I don't know. I think some of it's luck, some of it's, you know, tone of voice for us. I always felt like people were right that like the energy of the aggressive, more industrial sounding exploit of the band probably is us at our best. Um, and that's why when we play live, that's what we kind of stick to. Like, you know, you might find now or never in a set or, or, you know, a couple songs, but for the most part, we're never going to play acoustic songs live. It's just not who we are. Um, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to write those songs or record those songs and want to put them out because it's an expression that I feel like I need to go through for whatever creative reason. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I, but it's, but I don't know. I, I think, I think, uh, maybe, maybe if Everlast did that sing song, it could have blown up. Like, I, I don't know, True. but I don't care. Like I, I, I uh, I, I've never been that guy that like looked at my record and fished for the single because I've been independent so long that what my single is doesn't really fucking matter because I'm not trying to get on the radio anymore. I'm not trying to be part of like any, any current trend because that's not the business that I'm in. 
Like I'm, I'm a 25 year veteran of like playing metal and touring America. My fans, you know, are probably an average of 30 plus, like they have jobs and a lot of them are starting families and like, it's just different. Like I'm not trying, so certainly every now and then a young person will stumble across our music and I have a new fan who's 17 years old and that's super cool. But yeah. The or, or the kids, the kids right. of your fans now could be 17 or, and or the nieces and nephews and all that kind of cool shit. Yeah, you're 100 percent right. But for the most part, like the people that I have a relationship with that are invested in me and that I'm invested in that, you know, when I list a, a product or a pre-order or put a concert ticket on sale, like I know who I'm talking to. Um, so like saying that, um, I just, I just do what I do. And, and I know that they're either going to, it'll resonate or it won't, but it's, it's not with the attempt to try to attract some new audience. Like, bro, I'm in my late forties. Like, I'm not trying to be cool. (laughs) I do what I do. And people either think I'm fucking cool, but understand the fact that I'm not some young kid. That's like on the cusp edge of like, like I'm come on, dude. Like, that's not who I'm supposed to be. I'm a dad now. Like, you know, but if you yeah, and, and that's that's also why, like watching that video that you put out talking about blood money part zero, people could see and like you, you pretty much allude to it. Like this is not your main source of income anymore. You now do stuff in the video world and you now do stuff with, as you were saying, like the 3D, 4D type uh, imaging that you're doing that you do this because you love it. And then also working with bands like Static X that that are doing incredible and touring with Rob Zombie. Sure. And again, like, you know, I also don't work for charity. Um, So like, and it's a lot of fucking work. Like I I probably put half of my time still into the entertainment business, even though it does not account for half of my revenue. But you're right. It's because I love it. But it's also because like, it's just in my DNA. It's like, I'd have to break these habits. Like uh, I'm just so used to it. It's just part of what I do. And also, you know, this is an interesting one that, that I don't know if people will appreciate or not, but when I was a kid and I wanted to be in a band and make it like there were a hundred reasons that my father or friends and family gave me to not do it. You know, a hundred reasons I wouldn't make it a hundred reasons why I shouldn't do it. But the one that no one ever said to me, not that it would have mattered, but that you, you don't really come to realize until you become my age is that the American dream really is about like building your own business being self-sufficient, reaching a point where all this hard work that you've put into your business is now uh, paid off to where you can retire and you can either pass your business down to your kid or you can sell your business to someone who wants to come in and have whatever your business was. So let's say that, that I, my whole life, I wanted to make pizzas and I just wanted to make the best pizza sauce and the best combination pizza to where like that was it. Well, I never became Domino's and I never became Pizza Hut, but I had a nice business that like I, I had my my mom and pop chain and, and wherever and, and my fans love my sauce and they recommended to their friends. Well, in the next 10 years, I want to retire. I can't leave dope to my kids. I can't leave dope. I can't sell dope to someone else to go out on stage and monetize it. But it's a business that I spent 25 years of my life building the recipe and building the relationship with a fan base. So it's it's odd to me when I see, and, and again, I know it's for the love, but it's odd to me being like 
you know, my age and tired, like, man, I fucking worked my ass off for the last 25 years in a pretty aggressive business to look at some dudes like, you know, Mick Jagger, who's got all the fucking money in the world and could just sit on a beach in Mahi Mahi for fucking ever. And you go like, why doesn't he do that? Because if I were him, maybe it's because he never suffered like I did. Like he's been a multimillionaire on the Rolling Stones for the last 40 years. But like if yeah. I was Mick Jagger, the last thing I would be thinking about is going on some fucking stage and singing Start Me Up again. I'd be it's like, weird though, because I, I saw a video just recently, like, you know, how you're browsing YouTube and I don't even remember who said it, but um, they were saying how a lot of people like die once they retire. And I know. Like, look at, look at I Mick know, Jagger, look at too. Rod Stewart. They're still going hard and they're yeah. still like, living i don't know man it's crazy to me but 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 dude me i'm not i'm not that like i don't want to be on stage when i'm 65 years old it's just not where i want to be now that doesn't mean i won't be there on occasion or maybe full time because who the fuck knows what life is going to throw me yeah but that's not my goal my like it that just seems like not where i want to spend my time but um but the point that i was making was that um that's the one part of this business that they don't really ever explain to you, which is how do you get out of it? Like how, unless you really fucking make it, unless you make it like David Draymond and Disturbed made it, you know, and God bless those guys came up at the same time as we did. They just happened to connect differently. And you want to say they're better band, better songwriters, better singers, what, fine, whatever. But it's timing is, is a lot of it. Songwriting, connection, voice, all that. They had a, a recipe that worked like they became dominoes, you know, <laughs> And fucking God bless them. They're all such sweet guys. Um, but uh, but so they don't have to worry about it. Like those dudes can all retire when they don't want to tour anymore. They don't they don't have to. They're done. Um, but for bands that don't reach that level, which is most bands, um, there is a weird thing that if you don't want to do this for the rest of your life, at some point, you're going to have to figure out a way out. Um, so for me, I don't really want a way out. I just want, I've always wanted a way not to be solely reliant on it. And, and it also has to do with like, that's why I don't put out albums every year. Like, I don't, I don't feel like I want to, to have my livelihood dictated by like my fans, because then I have to ask them for shit all the time. Like I have to constantly be selling them something. I have to constantly be putting out content because of my livelihood. And you know, I, that's just not how I, I want to be at this point in my life. I don't want to feel so, so like so much a slave to it because we're all yeah. a slave to our work, man. If you're ambitious and you're trying to make it and set yourself up and set up your family, like if you're not, you know, a little bit fucking off your rocker as far as your commitment to it, like, what are you doing? Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. You, you know, it's weird. As you're saying this, I have ideas going through my mind. And you're talking about how I can't leave this business to my kids. Uh, the interesting thing is they're obviously on a completely different level. But I was just thinking of it as you were saying it, how Kiss has flat out said, like, when we're done, we're going to franchise franchise out the name Kiss. And we're going to have other people on stage dressed as Kiss. And 100%. And the, and the um. The sky is the limit for that, by the way, because I've listened to Kiss podcasts and fans speculate on this. And they're like, yeah, you could have a Kiss band in Las Vegas uh, playing sure. shows every night. You could have a Kiss act in New York. Um, but they're on a totally different level in terms of that. But it is interesting yeah. because I, mean, I don't think that's ever been done. Because you No, know, you're 100% right. And, and, and they are the band to do it. Um, but they're also a... Um, like... 
they're almost like Disneyland yes. to our generation. You know, there's Kiss Mini Golf in Vegas. Yeah, dude. So, yeah. so it's like so that that's that that's such an un an unfair comparison. And again, even if those guys didn't want to monetize Kiss after they were done with it, they don't have to because their kids, 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 kids are set up. Like the band has been so successful and made so much money. Um, so, but yes, you're right. They they are one of the few. I think obviously in the long term, Slipknot has the ability to do it as well. And I think you know, obviously, masks and makeup are a big part of how you can do that sort of thing. Yeah, you've uh, war without Dave Brocky now. There you and go. I feel like Dave Brocky was such a major part of that band. Yeah, I mean, dude, I, I'm sorry to throw the obvious shade, but you have Static X now without Wayne Static. It's like it, yeah. it's. It's achievable. Um, We're know, about to have Pantera without the Rex brothers. Crazy, right? Crazy. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah the Abbott brothers. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah, no, it's all good. Um, but yeah, it's it's fucking banana land, dude. Um, but I'm grateful, you know, that we've had the run that we've had. I'm, uh, you know, it's weird. I was talking about that Die Motherfucker Die song and how in, in one way it was it was very detrimental to the band's path at the time. But at the same time, um, I can't tell you after, you know, 15 more years, almost 20 years of touring since that song came out and the World Trade Center fell, um, how many people I have just met through various parts of life that happen to notice my tattoo in my hand or I just end up in a conversation with them and it comes up that served in the military, happened to be part of the Iraq war time timeline in our lives and immediately are just like, holy shit, dude. Like, I, I feel like we're brothers. Like your song was playing over the loudspeaker or in my fucking ears when I was kicking doors in, or I was like, you know, that's what we listened to before we went out on the raid and got hyped. Or I learned how to fire a machine gun in, in the, in the Marines. And they told me to pull the trigger to die motherfucker, die motherfucker, die motherfucker. So that you don't hold it too, too much. And it jams. Like the how many people I've met in my life that that song in some way connected with mostly because of the military. Um, it's unbelievable what a positive impact that song ultimately also had in one way it ruined my band and in another way it absolutely created a, an amazing other subculture for it. Um, but uh, but yeah, well, you're, you're reading my mind with that, by the way, because I mean. You, you may have seen from the show, I mean, we have like kind of a half civilian, half military audience. I've never served in the military. Chris obviously has as an army ranger and all that. So when I wanted you on beyond just being a nerd for the band, I was like, there is a military. Oh, uh, dude. 100%. Yeah. yeah. And 100%. then the other the other military, um, I, I guess, you know, thing into the band, I don't know what word to use was that I remember uh, when that list of songs came out for the people um, interrogated at Gitmo. Crazy. Also on there. Dude, how do you think that makes me feel? I, I, it's weird because I think for some people, they'd look at it as a negative and some would look at it as a positive. And I don't know for you. I mean, only you could tell me that. I, I, I'm a little bit of a weird cat. Like I, I have what I would call a certain moral flexibility. And, it, and it's been... It's worked to my advantage in many times in my life. It's also something I've had to become aware of so that I can like properly make certain decisions to not be a complete asshole, but I have a certain moral flexibility. And I think that um, I I'm not a soldier. I I'm in no way, shape or form I'm trying to compare myself to a soldier because those dudes are unbelievable and do shit that I did not sign up to do. 
But in a different life, I think if someone would have gotten to me sooner and put me in that that position, I think, uh, you know, I have leadership ability and I, nobody outworks me. And I'm, I was really physical when I was young. Like, I think that I would have taken to it like a fish to water, um, especially the, you know, like I said, the moral flexibility part where it's like you're, you know, it's sometimes in questionable situations. Um, but uh, I forget where the fuck I was going with this. You, you were saying you, you asked me kind of, uh, for oh, your yeah, own yeah, question, yeah. how Sorry. does that make me feel? Yeah. So like, so that moral flexibility kicks in when I'm like, well, that's fucking weird that there's some dude that like is on his last leg of life in his brain, terrified that he's going to die. And they're using my voice to try to get information out of this motherfucker. Like it's me, my tonal aggression is taking this guy to another psychological place. And I go, well, fuck that guy, you know? But then the other part of me goes, well, but I have a soul and I feel bad for that guy. And what I ultimately stumble on is, holy shit, it's just crazy to have been selected to do something so unique and to be part of something so unique. And then, of course, I come down to like, if in any way, shape or form, this helps save one of those people that have volunteered to go and walk that front line to protect all of us. Well, then, you know, I've done my part, the little yeah. tiny part that I was able to do. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel great about it. <laughs> right. Hey, hope that you're enjoying this episode with Edsel Dope of Dope. Uh, we're putting in these reads uh, in the middle of the show. So I don't know if we got up to it yet or if we're going to get up to, to it. But we do talk uh, some shooting because of uh, how it ties into the dope song, Die Motherfucker Die. So as we're talking shooting, I got to talk about the best ammo out there. And that's Fort Scott Munitions. Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammo that is designed to tumble upon impact their trademark and soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammo outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike with the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring they receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states. Just click on the dealer locator at fsm.com. You're going to find somewhere by you, or you could buy on the site for a while they were out. But right now they seem to be fine uh, with everything in stock. So check them out, fsm.com. Use the exclusive promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off your order. That's only available to listeners of this podcast, the BATTLELINE podcast, fsm.com, promo code BATTLELINE. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, BATTLELINE Tactical, and the BATTLELINE podcast. As we're talking ammo, we got to talk about night vision. We love our friends at Photonist Defense. Phil Otto, he'll be back on the show soon. So now you can have the superpower to see in the dark with the Viper Binocular Night Vision System by Photonist Defense, which is the global leader in night vision solutions, providing more high-quality night vision capabilities than anyone. Military, law enforcement, and public safety end users utilize Photonist Defense solutions to give them the edge at night in tactical situations and rescue operations. 
Hunters, shooters, boaters, and enthusiasts can rely on the Photonist Defense Viper Binocular to help them become master of darkness. This is the best night vision on the market. So be sure to check them out. The new Viper Binocular System carries the same features and benefits as the Photonist Defense Viper Monocular with a ruggedized body and harnesses the power of the echo intensifier tubes, giving you sharper images, reduced halo, and industry-leading ultra-fast auto-gating across the range of dynamic operating conditions. If you're looking for something professional, this is what you need. And we've even had Border Patrol agents reach out to us, and they're going to be checking out Photonis. And anyone who's used it is blown away at the difference between whatever they were using prior. So visit photonisdefense.com, P-H-O-T-O-N-I-S, defense.com for more information or look for Photonist Defense product options from your night vision dealer. With that, let's get right back to Ed Soldell. By, by any chance, have you ever seen Fahrenheit 9-11? Of course. So I remember in that film, they kept using that Bloodhound Gang song. Um, uh, what, what, oh, it's called Firewater Burn, right? With the roof okay. is on fire. And I remember they actually interviewed those guys and they asked like, how do you feel about your song being used by military? And Jimmy Pop had like such a smart ass answer. You could look up. He was like, well, if something's going to be the soundtrack for war, thank God it's not Creed. That was funny. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. And and also, I think what people need to take into account and like we've discussed it on the podcast so many times. Like I remember we had Rudy Reyes on who was a part of that Generation Kill show, former recon Marine. And he's like, we don't make policy. We don't dictate policy. We're just out there to do our job. So when something is done that maybe morally, you know, we don't agree with coming back, it wasn't our decision. Oh, yeah, that's course. not what we do. And that's kind of what I meant with that moral flexibility. It's like you have to be able to do that in order to to be effective. You know, and again, I'm not trying to put myself in those dude's shoes because I've never done what they've done. I can't imagine Same, the, yeah. the fear, the adrenaline, everything that happens when you got those night vision goggles on and you got a gun in your hand and you're kicking open a door and you have no idea what's on the other side. Like you're bad motherfuckers, dude. So I'm just super grateful. We we um we we knew that early on, though, man, like we started to feel it as that song got its own thing. I think the biggest disappointment of it for us was that we watched so many of our contemporary friends go and play those USO tours and we never ever could get them to offer it to us. And all I could do was deduce it to the fact that the U S military is not going to write a check to dope. And they're just not going to be able to get behind the promotion of bringing dope to come play for the troops. Whereas they could do it with seven dust or they could do it with disturbed. But I think that if you would have pulled soldiers I think that absolutely they would have been like, get that die motherfucker die band here now. That shit's going to be off the chain. Can you imagine dope flying to Afghanistan to fucking play die motherfucker die to a bunch of soldiers on a base? Like fucking get out of town. But it never happened. So that's my biggest uh, disappointment of it. But dude, just the amount of people that I have met that somehow that that song helped them do their job for America is pretty awesome. And, um, uh, yeah, we even did this thing shortly after that time period that you're referring to where we did a tour, we teamed up with our friends in mushroom head. I remember put this. together a tour called the music for freedom tour and anybody with a military ID got in free to the show. 
that was like a really fun sort of give back. And like we went into, we bankrupted a couple clubs, dude, because we went into like South Carolina to some nightclub, like right down the street from a fucking military base. And it was just like, bro, I'm like, I hope you guys are making money at the bar because nobody made money on tickets tonight because this fucking place is sold out and not a person paid a cover because they all got military IDs. But, That's uh, cool, though. I, I think the giving back aspect is important. It's it's funny that you mentioned though not being able to do those tours, because as I said earlier, we've had David Silvera on the show, um, who's original drummer for Corn and like great dude. And for some reason, he's like, yeah, Corn, when I was there, at least never played these USO tours. And he's like, I don't know why I would have loved to have. Um, I want to make sure we get into the new stuff, of course. I think the new stuff is great. You mentioned that song, Believe. That's definitely my favorite of the songs released so far. And um, for the listeners, just go to dopetheband.com. You could sign up there. You could start to get these songs directly to your email. You're basically releasing the Blood Money Part Zero album song by song and getting it all out there. Um, the reason we're giving, connect- it away, we're giving it away for free too. So like, yeah, I'm, yeah so just free. go to dopetheband.com and you just, you got to check out a cart, but you just put the free digital album in your cart. And then like you said, as we release a track, we're releasing like a track every three to four weeks between now and February. So by the time the tour starts in February, the whole album will be out. And then anybody that wants a physical vinyl or something, you can get it there too. But for the most part, we're just driving people there for the digital music to sign up for the mailing list and give you the album as it's released each song every few weeks. Yeah, and, and we'll get into the tour because I think that's an insane lineup. But um, what I was saying before, I definitely connected with the song Believe. And it's interesting how you said earlier that, that some fans who may not be like really into you guys realize that every release you've put out, you have different emotions in each song. There's There's an album... They're, every album has songs about heartbreak. They have the aggressive songs. They have the songs about just like personal growth and wide. being your best self. They're just It's just not a pigeonholed sound, but there is a theme that runs throughout all the albums that I think is what people sort of have branded dope as. It's the yes. double yeah. middle fingers and the hair on fire and the American <laughs> flag. And yeah. That will always be a big part of the band, but but like my soul doesn't stop there. And on every no, album, I, and I yeah, I feel like every album has all the different right. um, emotions of like the human experience. So that's why I was going to say the belief. No, you're song. right. I appreciate I, you noticing that. Yeah. And I, I always think you've been honest with your audience and your music with the things that you speak about. You could tell like we we gain perspective into your life as a person since mm-hmm. you're the person who writes all the songs. So the thing I was wondering about Believe as I listened to it um, is it's a, it's a very honest song. You talk about that line where you like, where I don't remember the exact line, but you're like, I've dealt through all, I've dealt through all these different things in my life. I've thought of suicide. And and then you say like, but not today I'm finding my own way. Life goes on. That whole thing I thought was super powerful. Now for like people listening to that, they might be like, what, what is it that Edsel has gone through? Because of the fact that like, since your twenties, you've been in a touring band to a lot of people. It's like living the dream sex, drugs, rock and roll lifestyle, which you've kind of traded in now for what you're doing, for what your life is now. But um, if you're comfortable with it, I was wondering, like, if you could give perspective into what sounds like you were writing about a very dark period in your life. Um, Sure. Uh, But I but just to quote the line, it's 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 actually sort of wide, too. And I and a lot of times I I feel like I'm guilty of writing um, very simple lyrics because of the width of them in my my expression so like that line is i felt the pain of loss and thought of suicide but not today i'm finding my own way as life goes on um 
But I mean, that can be anything like who hasn't felt the pain of loss and thought like, dude, I want to fucking kill myself. Like whether it's you, a family member passes away or someone you love passes away or someone you love gets sick or hurt, like who knows, or, or, or you're heartbroken, but there's, um, there's so many reasons that we feel loss. Um, and suicide is a thing where like, I feel like everybody says it. Um, and it's definitely not something to be taken lightly, especially in the demographic that we're speaking to, where you have a lot of people suffering from PTSD and like, there's, there's all kinds of ways that people get led to suicide. Um, I think for me, um, I have been in some dark places in my life where I have thought of suicide. Doesn't mean I considered it really. It just means I thought of like, which, which also they tell you is like the first step of really being in danger. If you're actually thinking about how would I do it? Like what would be the best way for me not to be an imposition? on the people that I live with and care about. How would I do it? Um, that's as far as I got. And when I got to that point, that's when I went, like, I remember hearing somewhere that when you start contemplating how you would do it, that's the first serious time. Cause everybody thinks like I'm heartbroken. I want to kill myself, but you don't, you don't actually do it. You know, you don't even go through any steps to get there. So, um, but I think, you know, most people have thought of it. Doesn't mean you've considered it. But I was at a super dark place in my life where I did consider it. But again, not even the the action. Like I, I've never been in danger, um, but I've thought, and that's what that's what I meant by that. Um, what when was it for you though? Because I like I said, I feel like for so many people, like they've seen your tours and you have a successful band and you have people connect with your music. Like what the time darkness, period? Was that the, for you? The, the darkness for me um, came in man this is this is i don't want to answer this so long and, and take up your whole fucking day um i'm, I'm go as long as you can man. There's, there's a couple, i'm loving this i'm loving right. this talking to you man great well there's a couple layers to this for me and i'll start with this one i'm i'm very much a destination person not a journey person like i'm very good at like setting sights setting goals being incredibly patient to allowing the goal to achieve to, to achieve the goal, but also very impatient in the moments of life and having high anxiety for getting things done to make sure that that goal is achieved. So I like to liken the analogy of like, you know, I'm, I'm steering this boat across this beautiful ocean, which a lot of people would consider he's a rock star. He's on tour. There's parties and all this fun. And on this boat are a bunch of people that are enjoying the view and they're enjoying the experience. But me, I'm not really enjoying it most of the time because I'm making sure the boat doesn't have any holes in it. I'm making sure that the boat is staying afloat and that we're charted the course properly and that we're going to have enough gas or wind to get there. And um, and then and, when and, they're and done, I should add, like for people who might be casual fans, like to a lot of people, you are dope. There's a lot of bands where it's like four people and, uh, you know, virus has always been a, a major member of the band, but at the same time, like if there's no Edsel dope, there's no band. Sure. Um, I mean, I think the better way to, 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 to categorize that is that I, I, I play a lot of roles in the band. Like not only am I the singer, I also do play guitar and bass and program and play drums. So I'm able to contribute on a musicianship level more than I think a lot of guys that are just singers and bands. And then I'm also the producer. Then I'm also yeah. the manager. So like I have so many responsibilities within the band that like when you, when you put yourself in that position and go, okay, this is the guy steering that boat. 
And while everybody's having a good time and looking at the beautiful sunset, he's on his knees banging those hammers in to fix that hole in the boat that no one else notices. Um, that's me. Even like when I'm on stage and the show is over and everybody's like, Oh, did you have fun up there? I'm like, I, I guess, but like, I, I'm just like, no one got hurt. The show went off without a hitch. Everybody loved it. The promoter sold enough tickets. They're going to want to have us back. All the fans had a great experience. They got their money's worth. Everybody's like happy and everybody like it was a mission accomplished. And I go like, okay, who on to tomorrow? So the analogy of the destination person for me is like, then once the boat now docks on the beach and everybody jumps off and they go to like collect sand and make sandcastles, I'm charting the course for the next island. And I'm going, all right, everybody, hurry up, get back on the boat. So I never have a chance to really enjoy the ride. And that's my own doing. And I'm conscious of it, but I'm still guilty of it a lot. Um, but so for me, take that and then put into it that, like you said, you know, I am the boss of dope. So now I'm on a tour bus for the or a van sometimes in the early days when we were having our hard times. I'm on a tour bus for the better part of six to, to eight years of my life. I've been through this crazy lifestyle and my entire existence is sort of there to serve me. Like if you don't agree with me, maybe I'm willing to listen to you because you're virus and I have to whatever. But like for the most part, you're it's like it's my world and everyone's kind of living in it. So if I don't if you don't like it, leave that. That's what I that was my life. And. I began to accidentally, because that's not who I was when I was a kid. That's not who my mother raised me. Like she raised a fair, like, you know, kind person, but I got real, you know, callous over the years. And like, so long story short, um, I, I reached my darkest point when I came to realize that like, I was, I brought that character, that energy, that aggression that was on stage I brought that off stage with me and I lived in it and I've never been a drug person. Like I've always partied and been able to be that guy, but like I've always gotten up the next day and, and made the priority, the, the quest, you know, the goals the succeeding. So I never had any fear of ever being an addict or anything like that. Um, but uh, so I, I, I just, I, I became I became the character off stage is the only way I know to put it, mm -hmm. but the character wasn't like fun. The character was more like, again, like in your personal life. Now you're arguing about dishes or whatever. And it's like, look, if you don't fucking like it, leave. And you, you can't have healthy relationships like that. Like you can't yeah. like my self-importance is a good way to look at it. Like being self-aware now and looking back, it's like, because when I'm on the road and I have all these people sort of there to serve me and pawing after me, like, I thought that was real life. I thought it was special. Like, bro, that's not how it works. Like, so that was the darkest time for me was sort of like, I, I almost had to on my own, like tear myself all the way down to nothing. And then kind of remember who I was at the core and then kind of rebuild myself. Um, and that was a really dark time for me because that meant that like, you know, relationships that mattered to me had to go away and that I had to sort of be alone for, uh, you know, several years and not get involved in new relationships with people that I thought would bring out that same thing in me. I had to change 
you know, behaviors, change behaviors equal different results. You know, if you keep doing sure. the same thing over and over. So that was, those were the dark, darkest times for me. And they were probably like eight years ago when I was just really trying to, you know, I just, it, it's weird because it wasn't like it was even in, in the loss of, uh, of that character, because I wasn't mourning for the character. I was mourning for the damage that the character did to people that I cared about around me in my ignorance of not realizing that like, just not the right way to be. And, and I came to it. I've told this story before. It feels kind of dorky saying it again, but like, I, I came to realize it when I was like trying to go outside myself and look in the mirror and go like, all right, who do you want to be? Like at this point, I'm like 35 or whatever it was like, who do you want to be, dude? Like you're no longer need to make decisions based on a childhood dream. Like when you're 16 and you go, I want to be a rock star, you all do anything it takes to do it. I'll run my mother over my car. Like I will do whatever it takes to make it. And it's a cutthroat, horrible business. And then you make it and you keep that mindset, but now you're 35 but you've already made it. Like, it doesn't have to be you anymore. You can reinvent who you are. And I was like, I feel like I'm living my life on the technology of like a cassette tape when there's like sure. DVDs out at that point. It's like, I should be rethinking who I am. So I looked in the mirror and I was like, would your mother be proud of the way that you like build friendships and like the way that you act within relationships with people that you care about? And I was like, no, my mom would be proud of my success and she'd be proud of all those things but like I don't treat people as good as I should like why is that because I've been conditioned to be like that over 12 years or 10 years or whatever of being on a tour bus and like you know the music business is very weird it's very much like built to it's it, to like pump your ego and reward you with experiences, like put you on stage and put you in positions where people want to touch you and take pictures with you and sign autographs with you to give you this false sense of importance because we're also fucking insecure when we're young and we want to be artists because we want attention and we want to be cool. Well, then go and fuel that insecurity with a bunch more mind fucks and then God add drugs on top of it. No wonder Kurt Cobain's not with us anymore. You know, the beautiful blonde, blue eyed kid singing sad songs with an acoustic guitar. Like, how'd you think that was going to end when you gave him heroin? Like, holy shit. Um, so, yeah, man, I've had some pretty dark times, but um, but it didn't take me long. It just take it just took me realizing that, like, I had to embrace the suck. Like I had to embrace like a military term. Yeah. yeah. I had to embrace the suffering to say that like the end is going to justify the mean. I needed to be alone. I needed to like suffer and, and like rebuild myself and then sort of reintroduce myself to the world. And, uh, and that's what I did. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Cause I was going to say fast forward to now, um, as I said, for how long I've been a fan of the group, Pretty much, I would say from 2006 to, I don't know, just a few years ago, you could see dope in this region, like New York, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, several times a year. You guys were always touring. So mm -hmm. did it maybe like take a bad experience to say, all right, I'm going to take a break from touring. I'm not going to put out an album for quite a while. And like looking at you now, you're now in a long term relationship, as you said, pretty much married, except for not in the eyes of the government. Uh, adopted a kid have your own kid like it seems like those experiences wouldn't have happened had you have not taken a step back and been like man, maybe I'm not going to continue touring at the pace that I was oh for 2000, sure 2000 2001 for sure 
but that was also that was a little different life decision but but it had but but same result um i right after we released the no regrets album which was our album after american apathy which mm-hmm. i believe is the best album that we've ever made um i love that, american apathy but thank you I, I appreciate that the, but the no regrets album for me was the one that were like i feel like it's it's a night like American apathy very much re- resembles a a more modern version of felons and revolutionaries to me. It's real, it's real abrasive and it's real small sounding and real industrial, which is super cool. Like I love that record. Um, but no regrets kind of did what I wanted to do on the life record that I don't feel like I achieved, where it's like it's a more organic sounding record and it still has those, you know, saw blade industrial songs like violence and couple other ones i can't no regrets even the title track we are but the width of the record benefited more uh by that uh ambience and the bit more of an organic tone to it that i feel like it just makes the record more pleasurable to me it's not so one-dimensional um but that when that record came out it did very well for us and we did a really big tour with zach wild and seven dust uh, Black I was, I was at that show uh, at that yeah. tour, Electric Electric Factory. Amazing, show. yeah, dude. And and Zach was so great to us, and Zach played on our our single Addiction, and super awesome. And and truth be told, um, that moment for me, like that album, was kind of like when I said, and that's kind of when I wrote the song My Funeral, which is on that album. I kind of was like, I'm okay if I never play music again. Like, this is kind of like, this is it. Like I, I've, we, I got the band back to a really, really, I got the band back to a level that nobody thought I ever would. Like we were on Epic Records with all the push early on, got dropped, got in a van, built it back up, sold more records with American Apathy than we did on the second Epic album. And then No Regrets came out, Zach Wilde's on my record and I'm on tour with Black Label and Seven Dust. Like, what more do I have to do to feel like dope has like done what it was supposed to do because in my eyes dope was never meant to be Lincoln Park or corn success level wise like it wasn't even in the ingredients of dope to be that uh, maybe if we would have gotten lucky with like a cover song like you spin me around or something could have blown up for us but it was never the intention of dope in my eyes to to become this big household name band like it was it was a lifestyle culty kind of cool thing um which is fine um but uh but after that no regrets record i really like i wanted to work on myself that was when i came to that realization that i wanted to work on myself um and i and i stopped touring i actually went to work in a marketing agency um where for three years of my life i like i only did weekend warrior dates because i lived in chicago at the time so we would go play you know midwestern markets on the weekends but i had like a normal corporate job where I was doing music programs for like the NFL and major league baseball and working on marketing campaigns for Indian motorcycle, American horror story, like all these cool brands. Yeah. And, and um, if I could just throw out there, man, that's so common with a lot of bands now. Like they do the casino circuit. I've become uh, friends. I haven't talked to them in a while, but like in more recent years with Mark Slaughter from Slaughter and like, that's what they do. They play these weekend dates at casinos. They sure. make a good amount of money. Sure. And then Mark does other things. So sure. for listeners who might not like know this about the music business, that's kind of common. It's not always being in a bus touring. Right. Exactly. Yeah, you're 100% right. So that worked really well for me in the Midwest because there's so many markets that are close to home. 
Um, but what, what it really allowed me to do is stop touring and to work on myself and to unplug from that energy that I had realized was kind of poisoning my, my growth. And I had to spend some time going through those growing pains of disconnecting from that and getting more in touch with like the boy my mother raised when I was a kid. Um, and I guess the truth be told was that the relationship, the, the, or relationships even that I was desperately attempting to repair in that metamorphosis to kind of tearing myself down and rebuilding was already kind of too far gone that no matter what I did, it wasn't going to be fast enough. There was too much damage done. So that, that took a series of time before that clearly identified itself as being like, not going to work, not, you know, so that was of course unpleasant. <laughs> um, and I came to that discovery at the same time that I was realizing that if I really wanted to succeed at the marketing agency that I was working at, I was really going to have to commit and like make that my life. And that felt to me like buying a fucking tombstone because I was like, dude, I'm, you know, 37 years old or something at that time, 38, actually 30, yeah, 38, 39. And I was like, man, there's just so much more experiential things that I want to do. I, I don't want to just start put my mind in competition mode for how I can be the best marketing exec. Like that's not who I want to be. So I left the job. Um, and all of that was also predicated on knowing that that was going to make me go back to being more of a, of an artist first and having to, you know, know I was going to probably have to go back on tour and, and those kinds of things, which of course were not going to bode well for anything that was going on in my life. So I, I kind of, at one moment, I just made a decision that I was going to leave it all. So I left the job, I left the relationships, and then I packed up all my shit and I moved to California because I just needed to put the past in the rearview mirror and the windshield in front of me. And sometimes- Where, where were you living at the time? Chicago. Okay. I was I know Chicago like dope has years. always had a presence like New York, Chicago. Yeah, we yeah. went, I went from New York City. We were signed to, we, we started in New York. We got signed. And then after like three years on Epic, we got dropped. Like I said, right after the World Trade Center fell. And that's when I began to realize like how expensive it was to be a professional band in New York, just to oh, park yeah. the trailer, just to rehearse. I was like, fuck this. I'm going to move to the Midwest where like Chicago is like the other major music hub. Our band was really big in Chicago. Like we had, we had become bigger in Chicago than we even were back home in New York. So it, Chicago was just a perfect place for us to go and be able to make records and tour more consistently and get a more of a, a foothold on those regional markets that were so close to Chicago. So I was there for 12 years. And then when I realized that like, I just needed a new start, uh, that's when I headed to LA right before I turned 40. So that's, you know, seven years ago. But, um, but what I realized for me, I always have been able to really take a lot of power from the, 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 the depression or the sadness that comes with like leaving something in behind and the seeking of like the new, whatever you're going after that you hope is going to lead you to more happiness and more success or whatever it is. Um, and that's always, those have always kind of been one and the same for me. It's like, you got to let something go in order to go chase something. And there's generally pain in letting go. Um, 
but the way that I've gotten through those disappointments or those pains in my life has been by being laser focused on something else. So for me, moving out to LA, there was a number of things I wanted to do. I, I knew there was some kind of entertainment business waiting for me in LA, whether that meant I was going to become part of a major management firm and manage acts or artists or other talent, or I was going to end up you know, directing movies. Like I have no idea, but I know I'm capable of, of a lot and I'm super good at communicating my creative thought and leading teams. So I just knew that coming out to LA was going to lead me somewhere beyond being on stage and holding a microphone and being able to like build a career. In addition to that, I knew I was going to stand in front of a microphone again and put out more dope music. Um, but I also wanted to do something crazy different energy. And I won't spend long on this, but that's where I did this project called Drama Club, where for like sure. two and a half years, I kind of got lost. It was in Chicago before I moved to L.A. as I was going through all this energy change, as I like to say. Um, I wanted to keep being creative as an artist, but I didn't want to have it have anything to do or have anything in common with the aggressive energy of what I had done with dope for so long because I was really going through this personal metamorphosis. So I, uh, I was like, well, what do I want to do is like I want it to be the opposite of dope, like positive and like just all about positive energy and love. And I was like, well, that's fucking I live in Chicago and house music is like ingrained in Chicago. Well, sounds like you want to do ecstasy and go to some house parties. And I'm like, yeah, I want to make the music for house parties and ecstasy. And like, that's what I want to do. And it's like, well, that kind of means you want to be a DJ. And like, I don't want to be a DJ. I just want to make music that makes people want to go to that, that, that energy. But ultimately that meant that if you want to perform and put that music out, you have to be DJs. So in a really weird way that wound, I came to LA that music found its way to to Rob Blasco, who manages Blackfell Brides, who came yeah. to do He's been in Rob Zombie. Right. He's like, this crazy drama club thing you're doing, this DJ act thing that you're doing, like, this is so cool and fun. And he's like, I want, I want to put you in front of kids. And I was like, I never thought of putting this in front of kids. I thought I was just going to take it to like nightclubs and like, like we did in Chicago, where we're take it to Vegas. And it's that kind of thing. He's like, yeah, but I think kids would love it too. I was like, well, that's really cool. Because in a way I was like, so in the early years of dope, I got to go on stage, put my middle fingers out, and, and I just got to like spread this punk rock, crazy, rebellious energy. I'm like, well, now I'm a little older. You mean I could go in front of kids and I could spread like where I'm at in my head and heart right now, which is a lot more just like peace and love and come together and, and different energy. And also the fact that EDM is like the sure. biggest music for that demographic now. Well, especially at that time, because this was like 2014. So it was yeah. like timing was everything so we ended up putting on masks and doing this whole thing and we did warp tour and we toured the world with blackville brides and falling in reverse and this is a side of me that anybody that knows me would just be like you did what like are you kidding me like and it was insane and if you go check that band out we had tremendous amount of like success on a non-commercial level because that's what that's what we were going for and it kind of served its purpose for me and ran its course and i was super happy with it made a lot of good friends and then sort of moved on from it but in the creation of tons of music through that creative time of my life, we didn't really put out very much. So in the coming years, some of those ideas got trans translated into the dope. And that's what that song believe, for instance, was an old drama club demo. That was an EDM song for lack of better words, but not even EDM. It was more like a new wave song. Like if you could imagine that song with no guitars and live drums, it's kind of like Duran Duran or like Depeche Mode. So 
which there's a lot of that influence in dope anyway. So we just decided to take some of those ideas and like put them, bring them into dope and see what works. So there wound up being three or four songs on this record that were spawned out of drama club demos. One of them being the believe song. Um, but so when I moved to LA, I knew I wanted to like chase something non-musical. I wanted to do this electronic music project. I wanted to also finish a dope record. And then I also made a commitment to myself. I wanted to produce a band. And I wanted it, which to is, that's a lot on your plate. It is, but I was committed and I, and I was like, I was, you know, I'm a crazy person. So, um, so I wanted the band that I wanted to produce. I wanted it to be a band that like I liked, but also a band that people already knew about. I didn't want to, I had already produced some unknown bands, but like, I wanted to produce something. And, I, and I remember some of them and some of them had great, like dirge within, right. Yeah, you did exactly. stuff with them and they were great. Great band and what a great singer. So yeah, like, I, and then the makeshift Romeo project. So I had produced, and then of course, all the music I produced for the NFL and video games and all that shit, but I wanted to produce a band that I considered to be relevant. Um, so the, the first thing I did when I got to LA was I put this really small tour together. It was like two and a half weeks of touring with Wayne static. And it was called the civil unrest tour. And it was, so this is when Wayne was, was solo. Cause I know he did a solo project, right? Yeah. Yeah. 2014, right before he passed away. Which, by the way, I don't know your opinion on it. That solo album is killer, I think. I love that album. It's cool, man. The, the What I don't like about it is that, like, it's so sterile. Like, it it's clearly sounds like a Wayne Static solo record. Like, I miss Tony's voice because Tony sings all over those Static X records, and he's such sure. a part of the sound. And I miss live drums. Like, I miss it not feeling like Wayne did it in his bedroom. But I hear you. Awesome. The guy, bottom line is anything that guy does is awesome just because his voice is yeah. so fucking unique. It's just so yeah. cool. like Assassin's of Youth. I, I love that song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I back that. I back that. Um, so um, so I put that tour together specifically because Dope just moved to L.A. I wanted to play West Coast markets because for several years prior, I had been really mainly doing Midwest stuff while I was working my corporate gig. So I knew that like I needed to sort of reintroduce myself to Orange County and San Francisco and all those places that I knew Wayne and I together, we could fill a room. So um, but truthfully, the motivation for it was that I thought that's the record I should produce. I was like, Wayne is my old friend. Tony is my old friend. They're the two guys at that point that owned and controlled Static X because through the years, different guys had quit. So those were the only two original members. So they had 50% control of the band. Yeah. And and by the way, jumping in here one more time on this, because I'm just curious now, there was a period where Wayne was not touring with, with Tony, but Tony was still with them at the time. No. So, so, so the way it went was Static X disbanded in 2009 when Wayne decided that he was going to go solo. Yeah. Um, the truth be told without getting into the, to the drama or the negative um, Wayne began down his drug path in like 2007, yes. 2008. And, and I've heard this from people because I'm friends with like the guys in Amur, right. Yeah. And Amur toured with static X at one point, but it wasn't really static X. Right. It was Wayne static and other guys. And right. I remember just those guys saying, I never really talked to the guy. He went on stage, went back to his bus, didn't say hi to anyone. Right. So 2007, 2008, Static X still exists with Tony Campos and Wayne Static. And the band is splintering really bad because of the drug abuse, but also because of the codependency 
that was taking place between Wayne and his wife, who was also a really big substance abuse person. So the two of them together were just like enablers for them to both be completely out of their mind all the time. Um, so, and in many ways it became like they were the band. And even though Tony was like a half member of this band, he's like, he had no say. And, and all Tony, like you really wanted the straw that broke the camel's back was really the girl being out on stage with no shirt on swinging around a shovel and just kind of it again. It, and it'd be one thing if you had two girls on the stage, like one on each side, like something to where it looked like production, but just her aimlessly wandering around the stage with her tits out. It was questionable and it didn't feel on brand with Static X. And to truth be told, that's what Tony railed against the most. It was like, bro, I, I don't care. I'm the easiest guy in the world to get along with. And Tony is. He's a sweetheart. And actually Wayne, sweetheart too. But Wayne on drugs, not so logical, not so reasonable, especially Wayne on drugs with wife on drugs. And wife yeah. is the problem because you have the band going, hey, can the wife not be on stage with the tits out and the shovel? Like, <laughs> it's kind of silly and it doesn't, you know, like, can we just be static X? And, and that was the undoing long term. So long story short in 2008 or whatever, 2009, I think it's 2009. Wayne comes to Tony, maybe it's 2010 because the album came out in 2009. Wayne comes to Tony and, and says, I'm going solo and that's it. So Wayne made the, the, the record that you're talking about pig hammer. And, um, and he went on tour and like most people do when they go solo, they they don't realize the amount of value that has been bestowed upon them by the years of touring and marketing that has gone into just the logo and the name Static X. And truth be told, even though it's Wayne Static and he's playing all the Static X hits, when you put Wayne Static's name on a marquee, it's just not going to draw as many people as when you put the Static X name on the marquee. No, that's that's why there's so much infighting in terms of who right. owns the rights to a name with so many bands 100 but that's that's the bottom line so so wayne went out and he toured and he learned really quick that like oh shit like i'm making less money i'm playing to less people and that for anyone that's difficult um and then so what he ultimately did was he realized like well fuck like i've i've gone out there i've done my solo thing i know there's more money if it's static x but like Tony wants to be in Static X, but only if I'll succumb to certain like uh, compromises when it comes to my wife and her involvement in the band. Um, and I'm not willing to do that. Maybe I can make a deal with Tony where he won't come on tour. And again, truth be told, because I know everybody, so I know the truth of these stories. Wayne essentially had his representation call up Tony and made Tony an offer that was kind of not the best in Wayne's and wasn't really that in Wayne's favor. It was like, I'll pay you X amount of dollars a month to rent the name from you. And Tony was like, okay, so I don't share in merch. I don't share in show pay. Cause I'm not going to be on tour. You're just going to pay me a VIG to rent the name. Okay, cool. Well, once Wayne got out there on tour and began to have more problems, shows canceling, things happening, and a lot of this was predicated, again, on substance abuse, it became hard for him to afford to pay Tony the agreed upon amount that he had agreed to pay him. So so then Tony's like, hey, uh, can we miss a payment? Tony's like, no. 
Like, why would I do that? Why would I, why would I sign up for you being static X without me out there with, 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 you know, hired gun musicians calling themselves static X and you can't even meet the agreement that you made with me that I didn't even negotiate for you offered to me. Like I took the offer. I was just making it easy for you. And now you can't do it because your bus just got raided for fucking from the FBI or whatever. Like shit was crazy, man. Wow. So, so long story short, um, the drug addiction was, was the problem. Um, like so many other people. Yeah. Yes. But, but I wasn't aware of this at the time when I put this tour together with Wayne, I was coming at it from the perspective of like, all right, I know there's a Yoko Ono thing going on, <laughs> but like, I know all these guys and I'm a great leader and I'm a, I'm confident in my production ability. And I'm going, I can bring static X back together. Like I'll have conversations with Wayne I'll have conversations with Tony. I'll make everybody see how great it would be if they got back on stage with Static X. And I'm thinking, I want to produce the record because I love the band and I'm the perfect guy to do it. And we'll all go on tour together again, just like back in the day. Static X and Dope. I'll put I'll put Koichi and Ken and Tony on the Dope bus and I'll let Wayne and his wife have the other bus with the crew and I'll be the mediator. Like I thought this would be really simple. So that's why I put that tour together with Wayne, because I wanted to like spend a couple weeks on the road with Wayne, feel him out. But I knew it. I was like, how, like, I know what Wayne wants. He wants to make money and play in front of big crowds. I know what Tony wants. He just wants the band to be creditable. How hard is this to get done? So I had some really, really good conversations with Wayne about this. And he was totally down. He was like, I just have to figure out how Tony and my wife can get along. And I'm like, well, we're going to have to work on that. I was like, but we're also going to have to work a little bit on like your, your health, bro. Like, I don't know what you're doing out here because at the time I really didn't, I was like, but like, if you want to go on the road and do six months a year and play big shows? Like we got to put the best version of Wayne static on stage. And he was like, yeah, I know brother. Like I got to get it together. And he just had a hernia, op hernia operation, but come to learn, it was really that the guy was just really abusing drugs. It was really, really, really bad beyond what I think anybody that wasn't Hammer Terra understood or their drug dealer. Um, but so when that tour ended, I played the last show that Wayne ever played in America, Dope and Wayne Static played. Oh, wow. And um, and I remember vividly like that night, gave him a big hug and, and we talked about music and he was going to send me a bunch of demos. Um, and I was like, dude, just send it to me. And then like, we'll start to get this together. I'll talk to Tony, but I'm going to wait till you send them, me the music. But like, I know we can make this happen. And even though I saw the, the little bit of the haze, cause he had had a few drinks and who knows, whatever, he was just like, I like it, man. I like where you're taking me. And at that time, Wayne was very alone. He had no management. He had nobody gave a fuck about him because he had burned everybody because he was functioning like addicts do. Again, I wasn't really aware of all that. Um, but I could see that like, he really looked at me like an ally. Like he looked at me like you're offering to help me do some things that benefit me. And of course, benefit me too. Like a good deal is good for everyone. So that's what I thought. And, um, and Wayne was going to China to play a, a big festival. And then he was coming back and he had like a week or two and he was starting a tour that, that, that Wayne was doing with Power Man 5000. And uh, that was when we were going to start making this all happen. And he came back from China and then Halloween night, I guess, had a big party. And November 1st was the actual day that they declared him deceased. Um, 
he died on Halloween night, like party and Halloween night. I mean, you can only imagine what that fucking party was. Yeah. <laughs> sure. He went out with a bang dude because they were living a crazy life at that time. Um, and I, and I say that in jest that everybody knows how yeah, much yeah. Wayne and everybody knows like what a tragedy it is. Um, but that was what ultimately lit the fire in me to be involved with static X was that I had that vision back in 2014. And then a few years went by and I had reconnected with Tony and then we just sat down and I started sharing all that with him. I was like, you know, I almost brought static X back together. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, bro, had I brought you this, what would you have thought? You would have been like, I would have loved it. And I'm like, of course you would have. I'm like, I'm telling you, I was going to bring this back together. I said, but in retrospect, the uh, obviously the biggest hurdle would have been, could we have gotten Wayne healthy? Because a non-healthy Wayne, um, a non-healthy Wayne w- would, would ultimately lead us to uh, six months and done. Like the band would have done one or two tours and it would have been over. And, um, but a healthy Wayne, who the fuck knows what it was capable of, but, um, but he passed away. I told, I started talking to Tony and kind of telling him those stories. And then that led to Tony saying, you know, my friend, uh, so-and-so, uh, has some demos that Wayne shared with him. I was like, well, did you ever listen to him? And he said, no. And I said, I bet those were the demos that Wayne was going to send me. So me and Tony started calling people going like, Hey, and then before you knew it, we started to collect music and we were like, well, we have a bunch of songs that Wayne wrote, but there's no vocals on them. Maybe one of them had vocals or something. We were like, well, that was the original idea. We were like, well, why don't we make like a final static X record and get all of his friends to sing on it for him? And that was the original idea. And then as that idea was being developed, we realized that like, well, then we should do a memorial tour for Wayne too. And we'll figure out who the guest singers are going to be and, and, and had no real vision for what it was going to be at that time. And, and then I started amassing what would, you would need the playback tracks because static X, much like a lot of industrial bands, you play to like tracks that have all the keyboard sounds and the loops and all the voice samples and shit like that. Um, and, uh, we needed those. No one had those. And back in the day, bands used to play to D88 tapes. It was actually an eight track tape that you'd slide into a tape machine and that would have like your click track in it and like your, your keyboard samples and all that kind of bullshit would all be on these tapes. So I was trying to locate who had the tapes because Static X back in 2009 was still using these tape machines. So somehow a box of tapes winds up on my desk. It's an old static X tapes. So they've been in a fucking warehouse. They've got mildew on them. And <clears throat> I plug these into a D88 machine. Most of them won't play. They got digital clipping all over them. They're just, the tapes are damaged. And as I'm going through and I find the backing tracks for like Push It and Bled for Days, all of a sudden I come across this one tape that I put in. And all it has on it is Wayne's voice singing like songs there's no guitar there's just like a shaker on one track maybe some programming but it's mainly just two tracks of wayne's voice and completely unreleased stuff right well i didn't know at the time i was like what is this so i call tony and i go dude do you recognize this he's like i don't think so i said get get over here i come to realize that on this tape i have probably somewhere around a dozen maybe more songs where i have wayne's voice I have no band. I just have Wayne's voice and like some programming. So what I deduced in my own inspector gadget head is that what a lot of people do with these D88 machines when they're making demos, 
is they, they slave two of them together and they're able to create a 16 channel recording device that takes two tapes. So you have two tapes that you plug in simultaneously. You slave one machine to the other. You hit record on one, both record, and now you can record 16 tracks. So I deduce that what must have happened is there must have been another tape. And that tape had the pro, the drum, fake drums and the guitars and the bass and the other ideas that rolled out these songs. So Tony comes over, he listens to all of it. We identify that like almost all of this is, is songs that, that have never been released. And some of it, he was like, oh, I remember when he was working on that idea or whatever. And I go, dude, do you realize what we have here? And I'm like, all we got to do is get you, Ken and Koichi in a room I'm going to drop some click tracks on these and we just got to write songs underneath Wayne who's fucking from the grave. Like this is insane. And long story short, that was what allowed us to ultimately make static X project regeneration volume one and volume two, which will also be coming out next year. And it ended up being a bunch of instrumental songs that Wayne had started writing that then we brought in and completed and we, we put vocals on top of them and then a lot of them were songs where we just had Wayne's vocals. And then we collectively, along with the original Wisconsin Death Trip band, wrote new music underneath it. So it was like all that Wisconsin Death Trip energy and uh, and ultimately made, I think, one of the most impressive albums I've ever heard, considering the circumstances. Like, yeah. is it the best Static X album I've ever heard? I don't think anything's better than Wisconsin Death Trip when it comes to Static X, but it's a damn good Static X album. And when yeah. you think about the fact that it was created without Wayne, it's pretty, pretty fucking amazing. So I'm really proud that we were able to do that. I wish Wayne could have been with us and that the original vision of me bringing him and Tony back together and having a big anniversary, because my thought was, again, same thing, like 20th anniversary of both Static X were coming, Dope and Static X were coming, and uh, and this makes all the sense in the world. Uh, it's unfortunate that Wayne couldn't be here for it, but uh, but at the same time, I'm very proud and grateful that we were able to, let me put this the right way. Like when Wayne passed away, let's just say that like he wasn't on top, you know, let's just say that like when me and him were playing those little club shows, like it was, he was struggling and the fans knew it. And that's why, you know, he was playing to small crowds. Like people yeah. in a lot of ways had sort of checked out, but after us bringing static X back and doing that 20 year anniversary memorial to Wayne static and, and making Project Regeneration and releasing that album to people, um, I believe that he's on the minds and in the hearts of the fans more than he's ever been. And he's like, he's like a legend in a different way. Like it's, it's like he went out not in the best, but we brought him back and we propped him up and made people remember him for the best of him which was the the work that he did in that nine years of Static X and then what he left behind for us to then help finish and to go out across the world and celebrate with him, excuse me, with his spirit and the fans and his family and the original Wisconsin Death Trip band. Um, it's pretty remarkable to think like if you were Wayne looking down and going like, dude, you mean to tell me that I died and three years later, my original band got back together went on tour, didn't try to replace me with some new singer, didn't try to move on from me, but instead like found a way to represent me and keep me involved in it. 
and make the fans like celebrate my legacy and like remember Wayne Static while remembering Static X, of course, because no one person was bigger than Static X. It was an amazing recipe that four guys made, but we all recognized that Wayne was the, the, the engine of it. But if he was looking down at that, like, dude, you couldn't do anything except for be absolutely blown away and 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 honored by the amount of love and admiration and the amount of work that myself and the band and his family put into orchestrating all of that. And if you saw those shows or even if you just find them online, like the amount of production and time, oh, yeah. money that was invested to like anybody saying, oh, look at these guys with their cash grab. It's like, bro, you want to see the fucking bill? from production and from touring like this was this was not a bunch of guys going oh we found our way to get to the top financially no this was a way for us to go out and do something really fucking cool creatively artistically that came from all the right places in our hearts um and i as a huge static x fan am grateful that it took place because i missed the band and i know the fans missed the band and now static x is on tour with rob fucking zombie and mudvayne playing to twenty thousand people a night like right where they would be if wayne was still here and that's that's again like that's all you need to say that like the music was bigger than everything else the connection that the band had was bigger than anything else and i think we found a very unique way to allow static x to continue to live while not making an attempt to like move it into the future and, and like exist on the future without Wayne. It's more about that. It's a legacy act and it always will be. And uh, it's just a very creative way to allow the band to continue to be part of uh, those big, cool experiences. Yeah. I, I got to see the show at Starland ballroom had a blast and definitely exceeded my expectations. And I think people are hoping that that's what this Pantera reunion is like, that that they're going to do the same thing. And I think they will, because I think it's like the perfect lineup for the the people who are. Yeah, they have know, a no massive advantage. They have a massive advantage, though, dude. Like when you replace, first of all, you're talking about absolute legends. Yeah. <laughs> but when you're replacing a legend in Dimebag with a legend in, in Zach Wilde, you know, that's a that's a little easier sell. Sure. Like Zach Wilde walks out on stage with Dimebag's guitar on, holds his yeah. fist in the air, and 20,000 people go, we respect you. I just think I the, the analogy, little, little though, harder. is that, oh, for sure. Uh, the analogy, I guess, that I'm making, though, is you're already seeing the comments, the same thing you're saying. This is a cash grab. And, you know, seeing like Charlie Benanti from Anthrax saying, no, this is a memorial to a guy that I was friends with or two guys I was friends with pretty much their whole career. And we want to, you know, keep that legacy going and do something else and, and give, get give, the closure that we wanted. And give the fans that opportunity to do that too. That there's something to be said about that traveling memorial, dude. And I know it because I lived it. Like it was, yeah. it was so powerful and maybe who knows, maybe we paved the way for them to go like, look, static X did it. And like, of course, static X is nothing compared to Pantera, but there's a lot of similar, you know, there's a lot of, fans that cross over and it's oh, absolutely the same, well it's the, the same last, press. I, I don't know if you're even thinking of this because i was there the last ever pantera tour static x opened correct the extreme steel tour was correct. and how tell me this lineup isn't awesome for the people oh i know that lineup metal. slayer uh, pantera slayer static x morbid angel and a band you met you know this was like scrape. kind of the band that got thrown on their scrape yeah scrape who the bass player or the guitar player of scrape brian became bricks who was in dope and american apathy 
That's wild. I didn't even realize that. But it was from yeah, killer show. I, I feel like but I'm here I, I got a little piece of morsel. Them. I yeah. got a little morsel for you from that tour that you may not know. Do you know okay. that originally Static X was contracted to play after Slayer? What, that which would be insane. That and that's why they said we'll take the money, but we're not <laughs> going on after Slayer. Yeah. Well, you know what was weird about that tour because I was there. I thought this was weird. Morbid Angel went on before Scrape. Yeah, I didn't understand that either. I don't know what that was all about, but I know that like Static X was so hot at that point, they were at their absolute peak that they were considered by the agents and the promoters at a value above Slayer. And that was that deal was cut with Static X above Slayer. And then Static X, the band members were like, oh, no, that's not happening. <laughs> Just out of respect, they're going on after us. Yeah. And you also know the fan base is going to be wild if anybody goes on after Slayer and you have to be at the level of a Pantera. That's right. even why when I saw the Big Four at Yankee Stadium, that's why I would say Anthrax and Megadeth went on before Slayer because it's so hard to follow Slayer. Oh, of course. Um, we're going long here, of course, but I would say that brings us to today, which is that you're going to be doing another tour, Dope, Static X. Uh, I have the whole thing in front of me here. Mushroom Head, uh, Fear Factory, Twisted and Society One next year. And this is the uh, Rise of the Machine tour. This is going to be an incredible tour. And I'm wondering, are you as curious as me? I mean, you might know a lot more than me, but to see Fear Factory with a different singer. I mean, to me, that's going to be unreal as a fan of that band for so long. There has never been a time that Burton Bell was not fronting the band. And I'm curious to see what Dino Cazares comes up with, because that band has been incredible. And I know Dino has been such a major backbone of that band. And uh, he's very open about it. He fought really hard for the rights to that sure. name and to keep that name going. And according to him, he's like, just seems like Burton doesn't want to be a part of it anymore. And we're going to move on. Yeah, that, I mean, that's accurate. Um, I, I, I hope that Dino taps me. I hope he introduces me to the singer that he chooses a, a couple months before the tour so that I can so that I can help to use my wisdom and experience to help them take the right approach. Cause I think approach is everything. Um, I believe that the, 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 the thing that they have working for them is that it's static X and fear factory on the tour fear factories, direct support. So they go on right before static X does the headliner static X, the bass player of static X is also the bass player of fear factory. Yes. Yeah. So when Fear Factory hits the stage, I forget who's playing drums for him, but I know the guy's a monster. It, I um, think it it might be Mike Heller. He was the one who was playing. That sounds when I right. Last saw That's, them. Yeah. That sounds right. But so you got it. You got a beast of a drummer on the drum riser, and then you got a legend in Dino on one side of the stage, and you got another legend in Tony Campos on the other side of the stage. If it were me, I would suggest. Because I know if I know anything about Dino, he's going to pick a guy that sounds amazing. Whether or not the guy has a lot of experience on stage or charisma or those kinds of things, I have no idea. But that shit's harder to teach. Yeah. So what I would suggest is I would put Dino and Tony out front. I'd put a big badass Fear Factory backdrop behind me. I would have the drummer monster guy do his job. And I would take that singer kid if it were me and I would put him halfway between the front of the stage and the drum riser in his own little circle and i would put him in the dark and i would surround him in strobe lights and i would tell him just fucking sonically kill this it's not about getting the hands in the air it's not about trying to go out there and get in the face of the fans and go i'm the new singer it's not about you bro 
is about these songs that these people have had a relationship with for fucking 30 years and you're the new guy just sit back and let them come to you just sit back in the dark with the strobe lights and let dino and tony hold it down on the front of the stage you take 10 steps back and just own it and i think if you do that i think people will have a really hard time distincting differentiating in their head what is an authentic fear factory experience and what is not because if you fucking if you just sit there and you watch and it's the strobe lights and it's crazy and nobody's going up and putting their face in it and going burn's not here look at my face if you're not doing that then people are just hearing the lights or excuse me hearing the sound and seeing the lights and seeing dino and seeing tony and hearing that somebody do an amazing job of singing fear factory songs that's all they want that's yeah, what well, what I'll throw out there as a huge fan of Fear Factory, Fear Factory is one of my favorite bands. And, and I also feel like they never got the credit they deserved. I put them on par with Pantera, I would honestly say, in terms of the songwriting, in terms of just the discography is incredible. Um, but I will say this as a fan, and it's with all respect to Burton Bell, who I'm also a fan of. <clears throat> for a long time, I would say he struggled live. There were many times I saw Fear Factory shows where I'm sitting next to someone and people kind of looked at each other like, what's going on here? There were times where he struggled with the singing parts. You don't have to comment on this. This is just my experience of seeing Fear Factory. So I do think if he could get someone who could replicate what they did on album live, which I sure. don't think they were able to do, at least not in recent years, people might be kind of blown away by that. And it'll be a totally new experience. Yeah, I can't speak on on the the later years of Burton. I would say... It didn't seem like he was happy there. So maybe he just maybe he didn't go into those experiences prepared or healthy or whatever it was. Who knows? I know when I toured with Fear Factory back in 1999, um, I got nothing but praise for Burton, both in his performance ability and just with how fucking kind and generous he was to us as a brand new band that he had no need to put his arm around and endorse, but he did. And, and Dino did as well. Like those guys were wonderful to us. So I have nothing but good things to say about Burton. I wish just like Wayne, I wish that Burton wanted to be a part of this. Um, unlike Wayne who can't be a part of it. Um, and who knows? I don't think that Dino feels like the doors ever closed. I think that Dino feels like if Burton ever wanted to pick up the phone and say, Hey dude, I'd love to work with you again. Let's just let bygones be bygones. I think Dino would do that in a minute. I, again, I don't know the things that made those guys divide, but I think that Burton has a more salty description of it. Like, I think Burton feels like he was burned more than maybe Dino does. So Dino has more of a, you know, forgive and forget mentality, whereas Burton has more of like he's holding on to some shit that he feels like wasn't cool. And maybe he's 100% right. I don't know. But uh, but I I wish him the best. And I also wish Dino the best. Um, I'm excited to see to see Fear Factory, um, and much like Pantera, and also the way I felt about Static X uh, before it came back, I, it's, it was the same thing. It was like I'll judge it when I experience it. Sure, but I think anybody judging it before experiencing it is it's kind of ludicrous. It's like yeah, I agree. It's. I mean, I get it. Everybody thinks that they they can put their their finger on the pulse and imagine what it's going to be like. But 
I mean, I just know with what we saw happen with Static X, like people had a way different, you know, I would have done it like this. I would have done it like that. Well, it doesn't matter what any of you would have done because look at the result. The result is that people are having Wisconsin Death Trip experiences with a band they never thought it would be possible to have those experiences with again. And no one is sitting there watching the band and going, hey, look, it's Burton C. Bell singing for Static X. They're not doing that. They're not turning it into Static Factory because it remains Static X, even though there's somebody else there and Wayne is no longer. And I think a big part of that was not putting a face to it. As long as there's yeah. no new face to Static X, Wayne will always be the face of Static X. So I advise for uh, Fear Factory to take a little bit of that approach and not try to reface the band with this new dude and let this new dude be in the shadows and let it be about the sonics and the sound and the lights and the experience so that people don't have to challenge their ears and their eyes. They don't have to go, I love what I'm hearing, but that doesn't look familiar to me. That's the yeah. problem. And that was all Static X cared about was like, I, I know you're going to hear it and you're going to go, that's what I was missing. But you're going to have to look at the stage and a guy's going to have to have his hair standing up and he's going to have to like, otherwise it's not a Static X experience because Wayne was as much the band's mascot as he was the band's singer. Like you could not see Static X and not think about this. But what are you going to do? Just get some guy to like spike his hair up and stand in front of it. It's going to like, why is, why is Burton spiking his hair up now to look like Wayne? That's weird. It's like, I, you know, I think the idea was we would rather come up with some sort of faceless entity that's yeah. not meant to be a person it's just meant to be a vessel it's just meant to serve a purpose and its purpose is to do what's best for static x so i would take some of that into fear factory if it were me and i think with pantera the benefit that they have is they have the dude at the center holding the mic that didn't yeah. change but the Absolutely. abbott brothers they're able to put two legends of our scene up there to to support those guys and celebrate those guys and it's I'm going to judge Pantera based on how I experience it. If Phil comes out there and kills it, I know Zach's going to kill it. I know Charlie's going to kill it. I know Rex is going to kill it. It's it's if fucking Phil comes out there and gives us vulgar display of fucking power. Dude, if I have the experience and I feel it, who, what am I going to say? Do I, yeah, wait, I, I agree we're there? Of course. Yeah, and, and I, I think people would be crazy not to go if they love the band because it's the closest thing you're going to see. And um, and as for Fear Factory on the tour that you're doing, um, if there's anything that I know about Dino Cazares just as a fan, he's a I don't think he, yeah, I don't think he's going to put a subpar product out there. And no. the evidence of that for me is I got to see that tour he did um, as the guitarist for Soulfly. Sure. And they sounded phenomenal. And but again, so, that's that's where I come back to. I think it's less about Dino because we know Dino's the fucking man. It's more about the kid, the new person. I call him kid because everyone's younger than me now. But the the new singer's approach to what he wants out of it. Like, how much can you not make this about yourself and make this about Fear Factory? The more you can do that, the more it will translate to the fans that you're the right guy. The more you try to make it about yourself the more they're going to not feel like it's it's not Fear Factory anymore. So that's just my vote, again, as a fan, I, and watching the human experiment of Static X up close like we did and, and understanding that Wayne can't be here, so therefore Static X had to do something very creative. The fact of the matter is Burton is still very much alive and well and could be here, and he's not. So that makes it that much more important to me that that person – handle that role appropriately so i'm as interested as you are 
I'm in, I'm in Dino's corner. I want him to win. So anything I can do for him to help, I'll certainly give him my opinion. Um, and ultimately I, I'm sure it will be great because like you said, when has Dino ever sucked? Like everything yeah. he does is fucking awesome. Yes. Yeah, which by the way, this is wild. So you're saying that you're about to go on this tour and I believe like four months and you have no idea who's going to be on stage with them. No, I, I mean, I, I, I know a backstory, but I don't, but I've never seen the guy. I've never talked to the guy. Um, but I, but I know a backstory, but yeah. And, and again, I, and I'm not even, you know, I may know one backstory. Dino might still have three or four people that he's toying back and forth with. And who knows, dude, the other thing that's crazy about this world we live in is that like things can change on a moment's notice. Like you think of just, let's take, um, What's that badass motherfucker's name that uh, used to sing for Kill Switch Engage? Oh, uh, Howard Jones. Howard Jones. Yeah. Do you think that if Howard picked up the phone and oh, he called Dino and he said, hey, dude, I just realized you got a Fear Factory tour and my schedule just opened up and I'd love to do it. Dino would be like, well, I already had a guy, but you know what? That sounds like a really cool thing. Like, Dude, so if you listen to um Jamie Joss did a podcast with Dino and he was throwing out the most like ludicrous ideas of who could sing for Fear Factory. Jamie it was saying to, to uh Dino, he's like, What if let's just say Billy Corgan wanted a front fear factory? That would be hard. And uh Dino's like, What? Like I, there's no way this would ever happen. Right. So um, yeah, but no, I agree with you. I mean, it so, seems so my, like they're my gonna point, put my, yeah. My point to saying that, though, is that I believe that while I think Dino has a, a plan A, I wouldn't even say that plan A is like final, because until you actually step on stage for the first time, you're fluid. And I'm yeah. sure that he's got a plan and a backup plan and a backup plan for the backup plan. If this guy turns out to not work or be an asshole or shows up on heroin, like, who the fuck knows, dude? We live in that kind of world. So I would guess that, like, Dino has a plan, but he's probably got a backup plan, and he's probably got a backup plan for that. And therefore, that's probably part of the motivation for him keeping it under wraps is not just because he wants to keep people guessing and, and let people discover it the right way, but also because he's still figuring out the final fucking pieces of all of it. Yeah, so, I, I remember he was even toying with the idea of having a female singer at one point, he was saying. Yeah, and... he talked to me about that. I was like, Fear Factory with tits. Hmm. <laughs> I'm like, I love girl singers. I'm not sure. That's interesting. Um, but I know where he's going with it. Like, again, Dino's Dino is an incredibly... Uh, he's not underrated in metal because everybody knows Dino's the man. He's the man with the right hand in metal. But I think he's very underrated as far as like his musical ability. And I think that Dino, like if you took Dino and you put him with an incredibly um, uh, prolific female kind of aggro vocalist songwriter, I bet you'd end up with a fucking ridiculously heavy, melodic, amazing record. Well, so what I he said... Yeah, well, I was going to say what he said on Josta's podcast. Didn't is he just get a female singer for Divine Heresy? That's, that's what, he, what he said on Josta's podcast. He said, I was thinking of using this female for Fear Factory. Genius. 
And he's like, it wouldn't work completely for that, but she's awesome for Divine Heresy. So now, see, I love do. that because Divine Heresy never reached the level of Fear Factory to where you can reinvent that man. And like, no, they've had and, multiple singers. Yeah, and it's dude, more I'll his bet, project. And I'll bet you that that, that scenario I just kind of laid out to you, I bet you that dude makes fucking ridiculous magic now. Like he will take that right hand crazy thing that he does, and he'll wrap it in notes, and he'll and he'll create a bed for that female vocalist to come in and just fucking take you to other places. I bet it's going to be amazing. So yeah. I really look forward to that. I look forward to that more than I look forward to hearing new fear factory because much like I mentioned with static X, I'm not so much interested in the new material from those bands as I am just knowing that those bands can tour again and play the hits. Like I think of fear factory, I want to hear fucking edge crusher. Yeah, like, of course. You know, course. new songs, okay, but I want to hear fucking Edge Crusher. But yeah, like, and see, yeah, how it sounds with someone. Else. I was going to say, by the way, so I'm but, looking at these CDs in front of me because I still love hard copies of stuff. This is a band with a sick female front woman, uh, monochromatic. I don't, black. I don't know them. They're they're a lot like the artwork band, though. But, that looks cool as shit. Oh yeah, but um, yeah, there's there's a ton of great female fronted bands in metal now, and I think things have changed from you know when you guys came up as a band. You're seeing a lot more diversity in bands sure. racially male female all of that and i think it's cool to see um i know we went super long here your manager originally was like all right we got you from 7 30 to 8 30 and we're already like four 40 minutes uh past that so i, I do I will, it to everybody i apologize I'm oh I, I i could go four hours here i love hearing your insight into this stuff and i learned so much new stuff in terms of like what was going on at the end on at the end of uh wayne static's career because as i said being friends with the guys in a mirror I heard a little bit of that as well because they did a tour, which was Static X and your El Nino. And I heard those same things that it was not the same guy. So it was interesting hearing that from you. Um, as, as I mentioned earlier, dopetheband.com. Sign up on the email list so you can get the songs for Blood Money Part Zero at Dope the Band on all social media. And then Rise of the Machine Tour, you're going to be playing pretty much everywhere in America. So I know yeah, we have listeners like everywhere from like Omaha, Nebraska to Texas. Yeah. And yeah, you're going to be able to see this tour there once again, which is Static X, Fear Factory, Dope, Mushroom Head, Twisted, Society One. And uh, having a heavily military, um, demogra heavy military demographic, I think a lot of those guys are going to show up to shows that, oh, as yeah. you said, kind of grew up on. Your and stuff, it's like, your dude, if, you, stuff. if you've ever pushed a weight in your life, if you've ever, if you're a metalhead <laughs> and you've pushed a weight at a gym or ran on a treadmill and you oh, are yeah. listening to Fear Factory and Static X and Mushroom Head and Dope, like, I don't know who the fuck you are. So it's a pretty cool bill for that time period. And also it's pretty cool is that the first tour that Static X and Dope ever did together was opening for Fear Factory back in 99. So wow. it's the first time that Static X, Dope and Fear Factory are all back together after 20 years. Um, and again, of course, it's it's unfortunate that a couple of very important key pieces aren't going to be there, but still the spirit of those bands and the fans and the connections that we all hold together are going to pack those rooms every night and it's going to be insane like for all three of those bands. Um, when I say those three, it's it's Static X, Fear Factory, and Dope on all the dates, and then their special yeah. guests, Mushroom Head, and other bands on some other dates. But those three bands, like there's no doubt on my mind, like every night it's going to be fucking mayhem. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely a shared fan base for those bands. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it. And like I said, I really appreciate you going long here. Um, as so I said are earlier. you going to come to the New York City show? Is that where we'll see you? Yeah, I should be at that one because right now, as I said, I'm in Connecticut. Um, so I think the closest thing will be, I don't know if there's a Connecticut date. The closest one will probably be they New York They may have City. added one. 
They may okay. have added uh, like I'll a, be one of those, one of the two. I don't think it's Hartford, but I think it's some. But either way, you'll hit yeah. up my people, and I'll see you there, and we'll uh, we'll have a beer. Oh, dude, that would be. I mean, this band, your band, has been such a major part of my life. Like I've seen dope at, like I said, the Electric Factory venues that are no longer around, like the Croc Rock in Pennsylvania. Oh, and what the, a the place! Crazy donkey to own that place. Yeah, I remember rock it rock. was like raining in the building when I saw there because the place was like falling apart. Yeah, but we loved that place. We did like that was just one of those markets that for us at every time we were there was just off the chain. It, it's true because I'll be completely honest, man. Within a span of a few months, I remember seeing dope at the Croc Rock in Pennsylvania and then seeing dope at Webster Hall. And the difference in terms of the audience. Oh, yeah. Like the Croc Rock just packed. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, it's funny. That was at a time, too, where like New York was weird. And I think a lot of it has to just do with the cost of living in New York. But like, we how do you think I'm in Connecticut, bro? <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, we were a band that we blew up as a local band in, in New York, but much of the way we were presented to New Yorkers wasn't like a local band. Like, we were presented like a national act on a local level. Um, but the point being that, um, that once we got signed, our foothold really became like the Midwest, and our New York City fan base kind of it kind of went away. It was like New Jersey still did well, but like New York City proper was a hard place for us to draw. It, it was really weird. And I think maybe it was because of the, the, the type of clubs we played as a local New York act. We played these little off the wall places. But either way, um, yes, uh, Allentown was a great room and a great a great market for us. New York City, we, we kind of struggled there for a while, but we've we've gotten it back now. And like the last time we were there with Static was really great. And I'm sure Irving Plaza will be nice and packed for that, th- those three bands and it'll be good. But yeah, New York's an interesting market. Yeah. Well, I'm excited, man. And, and this has been like, like I said, an honor for me uh, to talk to you. I, I never thought all those years back I'd be doing this because all those years back podcasts didn't even exist. This wasn't a thing. I kind of came up in radio at like the very end of when it was all terrestrial and what is serious XM sure. and everything has changed so much in the past 15 years um but anything else before we go man i i appreciate going long no i'm good man i mean if you got anything else i'm happy to answer it um i see you look like when you're done with this it's not live right uh no 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 any chance you can throw like a lut on mine or something at the bottom just to like crunch the blacks because like i look my skin tone i'm like fucking red and you're all handsome and tan and like i look like <laughs> shit so if you can, I can ask minute, our video guy our video up, guy dude, does tell him to like that. crunch the blacks and just like do a basic color grade to it because i look like i'm fucking i don't know if i got a red light in here or what it might be tough because i have the zoom where it's like when you talk it pans to you uh, and when i talk it pans i bet to he me. can i bet if you ask him he can do it yeah, I'll, I'll like, either way. I'll live. It's my own fault, but I look like dog. You're killing me here. The, the majority of the people listen, though. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think it'll be a problem. Well, if you're listening and you go look at this, <laughs> I'm not generally this color. Like, I don't know why I'm so red. Like, I look like a lobster. It's very strange. But anyway, That's... it's been fun. Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. Man. If you got anything else for me, I'm happy to answer it. Otherwise, I'm going to get my ass back to work. That's all for this episode of the Battle Line Podcast. But we'll be back on Monday with more American Straight Talk. Until then, be sure to follow us on Instagram at Battle Line Podcast and on Twitter at Battle Line Pod. To sign up for future Battle Line tactical courses, go to www.christantoperanto.net. Believe in yourself 
face all challenges head on. And as always, never, never quit. quit.